1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emily. As you may have noticed in the the passage this morning, this passage is speaking about... um, Really, it's speaking about a desire in all of our hearts. It's speaking about a longing that we all have in our hearts, and that is a a desire to be wise, to to desire to find wisdom, to to have wisdom. We we see this in in the first pages of Scripture where where Eve is in the garden, and she's looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and and, and the text just uniquely tells us that she, she saw that the tree was desirous to make one wise. This, this desire for wisdom, this desire to be wisdom is something that is just rooted deep in every single one of our hearts here. To, to be human is to long for wisdom. It's to, to want wisdom. And this is, this is true for, for many reasons, Why right? we, we, we desire wisdom because wisdom is going to help us answer life's big questions. Who am I? What am I here for? It helps us answer the, the personal questions of our lives of what am I going to do with my life, right? You, you have that question and we say, you know, man, may the Lord grant you wisdom. May you just seek and discern what is it that you're going to do. We desire wisdom because we believe that, that wisdom is going to help us have the good life. It's going to lead to us experiencing human flourishing. If we have wisdom, we're going to find comfort. We're going to find peace and rest. And think of like wisdom almost like the key to the good life. Wisdom is the, the key that's going to open up that door for us. And so while we all have this desire for wisdom, the desire in and of itself actually points to a problem. And the problem that we see in our passage here, the problem that we see in Corinth, is that while we all desire wisdom, we don't know where it's found. We don't know what is truly wise. In fact, I think ever since Eve in the garden, we can see that the story of humanity has been the story of looking for wisdom in all of the wrong places. 
think about your life. Every day you go through your day and you are just bombarded with things that are claiming to be wisdom. You are just filled with noise that is claiming this is wisdom. This is going to lead to the good life. Whether it's the, the talking heads on the television, whether it's the, the talking the radio host, whether it's the blogs or the website that just reveal that promise your best life now, that wisdom is found here. There's just this question, where is wisdom to be found? And it seemed like this was similarly a problem for those in Corinth as well, as it seemed that they were just so confused about what is wisdom. They were longing, they were searching everywhere for wisdom, but they didn't know where to find it. In fact, it seems like the Corinthians were just far too easily swayed by the cultural views of wisdom, by what the society was saying. Look, this is what is wise. This is where wisdom is found. They were, they were swaying. They were just being tossed to and fro. And so this letter uniquely in 1 Corinthians, Paul is uniquely writing to them, trying to help these new converts that are in this society that in, in many ways looks just like our society today. The hustle and the bustle, the desire for, for money, for power, for wealth, for influence. They're being swayed by all of these things. And he, Paul is trying to help them live Christianly. And he starts right here in chapter 1 and 2 by correcting their view of wisdom. Because he knew that, what their, that their view of wisdom was going to shape, it was going to direct the way that they lived their lives. Their, their view of wisdom was going to paint this picture of what the good life looked like. And for Paul, it was absolutely vital that they understood what true wisdom is. And it's needed for each of us this morning. So more than anything else here in our passage, what, what Paul wants the Corinthians, and, and by extension, what God wants for each of us this morning, is that we will see that true wisdom is found only in the gospel of God, as revealed only by the Spirit of God. This is what Paul wants for each of us. This is what God wants. God wants us to see that true wisdom is found only in the gospel of God as revealed by the Spirit of God. So as we continue this morning, we're going to unpack this claim as we see where true wisdom is found and how we come to know it. And so first, let us see that true wisdom is found only in the gospel of God. Verse 6, in verse 6 of our letter, Paul takes a, a surprising turn as he seeks to show us what true wisdom is. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you've seen that Paul's been, been pretty hard on wisdom, right? He's saying, look, I'm not coming to you in words of wisdom. I'm not coming to you in these plausible words of wisdom. My message is not wisdom. And here he makes a surprising turn as he says, but among the mature, that is all Christians, we do impart wisdom. But what Paul is seeking to show them is that the wisdom that he brings, the wisdom that he preaches, the wisdom that is found in the gospel is contrary. It's different from the wisdom that they so valued and cherished, the wisdom that the world around them was, was proclaiming. So again, in verse 6, Paul writes, he says, Yet among the mature, that is all those who have trusted in Christ, Paul says, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. In this letter here, in this phrase, Paul's letting the Corinthians see and understand that the message he proclaims seen in the gospel is fundamentally opposed 
to the wisdom that the people in Corinth were proclaiming. It's not a wisdom of this age. Tab, I think, helpfully unpacked what this wisdom of this age looks like, and, and that is just, just wisdom that is purely human. I think Tab called it like rational wisdom. The, the wisdom of this age is the wisdom, it's just the best that, that humanity can come up with. As we were thinking through, or as I mentioned earlier, it's the, the, um, the wisdom of this age. It seeks to, to paint a, a picture of the, the good life. It seeks to answer all of life's big questions, all of it without God. All of it without any mention of who God is or what he's doing in the world. And that is not the message that Paul preaches. He says it is not a wisdom that seeks to develop this worldview without God. The, the, the content of Paul's message, it wasn't found in the wisdom of age and it wasn't proclaimed by the rulers of the age, the, the rulers of this age, it could refer to kind of like the, the social elites. You can almost think of, uh, it refers to the Roman leaders, the, the Jewish leaders in the church, those whom he references in verse 8 who crucified Christ. But, you know, that we can think of them as rulers because in a very um, significant way, the, those, the, the Roman leaders, the Jewish leaders, they were the ones who, who controlled the, the cultural values of the day. Everyone looked to them. But today, we, we, rulers of this age isn't a, isn't a phrase that we use very often. So it might be more helpful for us as we think through what are the rulers of this age for us today to think of it or to, to picture it as, as the social media influencers. That's a, that's a thing, and apparently they make a lot of money. It's, it's the, the rulers of this age are, are the social media influencers. It's the, the gurus, the spiritual advisors. It's the, the talk radio personalities. It's, it's those who are shaping the cultural views of the day, those who are shaping the message that we're receiving here. And Paul says, look, I don't come bringing that message. And what I find interesting here is, is the, the striking end of this wisdom that Paul shows us here. At the, at the end of verse 6, Paul says that this wisdom, the wisdom of the rulers of this age, he says it's doomed to pass away. Your translation might even say that the wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age, that they're, they're coming to nothing. And I think this speaks to not just a, a future reality, although that's definitely the case, but this, this coming to nothing also speaks to a, to a, a present experience, that this, this wisdom that the rulers of this age, it's not just ultimately going to pass away, but as we look around the world around us, as we, we see that any vision of, of what human flourishing looks like, any vision of the good life that seeks to leave God out of it, is ultimately fleeting. Our pursuits of, of happiness, joy, and meaning, or purpose, the, all these things that we do that leave God out of the picture, they're ultimately doomed for, for failure because they can't provide what they promise. And as we look at, at the lives of the people that we work with, the people that we live next door to, the people that we go to school with, we see that this is happening all around us. This coming to nothing is, is happening. We're seeing it, we're seeing it uh, crumble all around us. I think the, the wisdom of this age can be seen most clearly in what you might call the secular myth, right? That's kind of uh, here in the West, the wisdom of this age is seen in this secular myth. It's this belief that, that individual freedom and self-expression are the highest good. 
the highest good that we can long for in our lives or in the lives of those around us is their complete freedom to do whatever they want with no restraints and their complete freedom of self-expression. We just see it all around us. And this belief, it's coupled with the idea that the, that the more human freedom there is, the more autonomy there in, the more that autonomy increases, that the world is inevitably going to improve and we're going to see some sort of utopia. But as we look at the lives of those around us, we see that this just isn't the case. The, the secular myth isn't leading to a better world or to a perfect society, but instead we see lives and structures just crumbling all around us. We see just the, the fruit of this and the fact that people are more anxious and depressed today than ever. This secular myth of complete freedom, do whatever you want, that promised human flourishing, it promised the good life, it's leaving people more anxious and depressed. We see the loneliness epidemic that is just affecting everyone, people from all classes of society. No one is immune to this loneliness epidemic. As I was thinking through this piece, I was just struck by this... um, this book I was men- that I was reading mentioned uh, this story about Marcus Person. I'm not personally familiar with him, but he is the mind behind Minecraft. He's the guy who, who, who built or developed whatever you do there, Minecraft. He, he eventually sold this game for what I understand is billions of dollars. And weeks later, he sends out this tweet. And it's just, I think this paints a, a picture of where the wisdom of this age leads. He says, 144 characters, right? He says, hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. Partying with friends, hanging out with famous people, have all the money in the world, I can do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. This is, this is where the secular myth is leading us, the belief that, that human freedom, that if you just have enough freedom, enough money, then you'll finally be satisfied. You're finally going to be able to, to live the good life here. But as we see in this tweet, and it's just one example, you can list them off one after the other. We see here with stunning clarity that the secular myth ends with loneliness. It ends with isolation, but it continues We see the promise of technology that was going to unite the world together. It's only led to an increase in bullying. It's led to just the vast spread of hatred around us. The sexual revolution with its grand promises, it's only led to the greater objectification of women and the slavery of so many in the church, so many in this church to things like pornography. As we look around us, as we look at the wisdom of this age, we see this gap between what the secular myth promises and what it delivers. The wisdom of this age, we see it all around us. It will ultimately come to nothing, and we can see it in the lives of those around us whom we love, that it's coming to nothing. As we think about this wisdom, thankfully, that is not the message that Paul brings. Paul does not bring a message of the wisdom of this age that offers this view of the good life that is purely human, that leaves God out of the picture. But Paul shows us there's another option. He shows us that he comes bringing the wisdom of God. See the glory of this wisdom with me beginning in verse 7. 
Paul writes, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Here Paul is showing us the wisdom that he does bring. The wisdom that he brings is the wisdom of God. As we find ourselves here in chapter 2 of this letter, and as we've heard over the last few weeks, Paul's explained, he's shown us what the wisdom of God is. And in chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Paul has said that the wisdom of God is the, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. In chapter 1, verse 30, Paul has said that, that Jesus himself is the wisdom of God. It's the, the wisdom of God is the totality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That is the true wisdom of God. Here we see that the true wisdom of God, it's the gospel. It's the good news that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that all who trust in God are restored to a right relationship with God. This is the message that Paul preached. This is the message we see here in verse 7 that God decreed. It's the message in verse 8 that the rulers rejected. And in verse 9, we see it's the message that we received. Thinking through this passage, I think what struck me the most was that phrase, for our glory. Do you see that at the end of verse 7? Paul says that God decreed this wisdom before the ages for our glory. I mean, this is profound in and of itself, especially as we, we think through the end of the wisdom of this age that is coming to nothing here. The end of the wisdom of this age is our glory. Church, the wisdom of God is the picture that in life eternal, and even right now, we can experience and share in the glory of God. Paul tells the Corinthians in the next letter that they are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as they look at and as they behold Christ. We experience his glory right now. And the promise of this glory is in the ultimate future reality for all of us. We're seeing Jesus. We will become like him. I mean, the sheer weight of this just causes Paul to stop in the middle of his, art, in his, in the middle of his argument here and just to meditate on the wonder of the gospel. Look at verse 9. He says, the, 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 the weight of this, the glory of this, he says, it's what no eye has seen, it's what no ear has heard, it's what no heart has imagined what God has prepared. This is God's true wisdom. We live in a world searching for wisdom. Each of our own lives and our own hearts, we live searching, looking all over for true wisdom. And here Paul is showing us that God's true wisdom is the gospel revealed in his son for our glory. It's not the fleeting promises of this world, but it is the promise that we will be with God forever and he is with us here and now. 
So church, like Paul, let's grow. Let's, let's increase in our wonder of God's true wisdom, this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified for us and for our salvation, as the creeds say, and for our participation with God in his, in his glory. Church, let's look to and let's hunger for God's wisdom alone, which shows us the emptiness of the false wisdoms around us, but displays the glory of God's wisdom for us in Christ. I mean, this just even speaks to why we want to be a gospel-centered community, right? This, this, this series here is called Being a Gospel-Centered Community. We want to be a gospel-centered community because this is where the wisdom of God is found. We want God's wisdom to shape and to define the type of community that we are that is constantly pointing one another to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is our first point here, that true wisdom is found only in the gospel of God. But it leads to a second and perhaps more important question, which is, how do we get it? And so secondly, Paul shows us that the true wisdom of, re- of God is revealed only by the Spirit of God. Look with me at verse 10. Paul says, these things, this is the wonder of the gospel he's just proclaimed here in verse 9. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. God's wisdom is revealed to us only by the Spirit. Do you ever wonder, maybe as you read the Gospels, even hearing these words in in 1 Corinthians, do you ever wonder why so many people missed it? Like people were walking alongside Jesus, they were looking at him, and they just completely missed it. They completely missed him. They didn't see that this was God come in the flesh. I mean, these were the religious leaders, these were the, the, the elites, they were the most educated in the world, and they completely missed who Jesus was. Does that ever just cause you to question, just wonder, why, why is that? Or maybe more personally, as you're sitting here this morning, do you ever wonder why, why you believe in and treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ when the rest of the world despises him? Do you ever just sit down and think, maybe it just moves you to tears, why in the world do I believe in Jesus Christ when my parents, my children my brothers and my sisters, my dear friends whom I love so much, don't. Why? Why is that? This passage here is is helping us see that in those moments, the reason why you believe and the world doesn't is because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us. Church, that should just blow your mind. That should just lead you to thanksgiving for God and what he has done for you, that he has revealed this to you. In verse 11, we see why the Holy Spirit has to reveal this to us. Verse 11 writes, here's the reason, right? For for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Here we see that the Spirit must reveal the wonder of the gospel to us because on our own, we cannot understand. Let me just play a little, little thought experiment here, a little game. 
right now, all of you sitting out there right now, there's, there's no way for you to know the thoughts that are going on inside of my head right now. There's a lot to be thankful for in that, that you don't know the thoughts going on in my mind right now. But just like you, there's no way for you to know the thoughts that are going on in my mind right now, Paul here in verse 11 is drawing an analogy to the Holy Spirit, and he's saying there's no way we can know the thoughts that are going on in God's head. There's no way we can know God unless he reveals it to us. You're, you're never going to know my thoughts unless I speak them to you. And we will never know God's thoughts unless he reveals it to us. God's wisdom, his gospel, his son, they must be revealed to us. And we see that this is a theme all throughout scripture. If God is going to be known, he must reveal himself. Even as Paul was showing us, or as Tab was showing us even last week in verses 4 and 5, that the gospel must come to us in a demonstration of the Holy Spirit in power, if we are to believe, it must come with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, I think this is perhaps one of the most profound passages in Scripture. Paul writes, he says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that God has chosen you. And here he answers why. He says, We know that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit. The message came to them in the power and in the Holy Spirit. That is why they, they were able to believe. That is why they were able to come to know God, because he revealed it to them by his Spirit. Just think of Matthew 16 and Peter's confession, right? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, almost without thinking, just spouts out, you are Jesus Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And what does Jesus say? Does he say, congratulations, you figured that out on your own? No, that's not what he says. But again, we see the primacy of needing God's of God to reveal this to us. He said, blessed are you. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. Church, if you are here and if you are trusting in Jesus, if you look to the gospel and you see the wisdom of God and you glory in that, it is only because God in his grace has revealed this to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who is able to reveal this to us because he himself is God, right? That's what, that's what we see here. The, the Holy Spirit, he's not some, some force, maybe some impersonal spirit out there. But the, the Holy Spirit is the, the third person of the Trinity who knows the thoughts of God because he is God. That's what he says. It says, no one knows the spirit of a person except that person. And no one knows the spirit and no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And Karl Barth was a theologian. He's had a great statement who said, only God can reveal God. That is why we need the Holy Spirit, because only God can reveal God to us. And I think this helps maybe provide a little bit of, of correction from us, as it helps us maintain a, a Trinitarian view of our salvation. So often, I know I can just kind of default to looking at our salvation as the work of the Father and the Son completely leaving the work of the Holy Spirit out of the picture. But this passage here helps us to, to have a Trinitarian understanding, seeing that our salvation, it's not just a, a work of the Father who, who planned this, who decreed this message in advance, 
It's not just the work of the Son who died on the cross in our place, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes, who revealed to us the wisdom of God, who revealed to us the glory of God in the face of Christ. This here is the, it's the primary work of the Holy Spirit. Starting next week, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Uh, we're going to be looking at just the various aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit, especially his words there about the importance of spiritual gifts. But as we've just been looking at here in this passage, the most important work, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to open the eyes of the blind to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's to restore deaf ears so that they can hear the sweetness of Jesus' voice. It's to rouse in our hearts to imagine the infinite wonder of life with God now and forever. That is the primary work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he does many other things, good, important, and needful things. But this right here, friends, this right here, this revealing work is the primary work of the Holy Spirit. That's why as Paul continues, he says that not only did the Holy Spirit reveal this message to you, but looking at this, the same truth from a different angle, he says that you have received the spirit of the wisdom or the spirit of God. Look with me at verse 12. Paul writes, he says, now we have received the spirit not of this world, which embraces the wisdom of God, but we have received, or the wisdom of the world, but we have received the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. This is why Paul can say in verse 16 that we have the mind of Christ because having received the Holy Spirit who alone knows the thoughts of God, we now have the mind of Christ. We have access and ability to understand and to live in the good of the very thoughts of God that he's revealed to us in his word. Now, before we look at the, at the implications, the applications of this message for our heart here, I just want to speak to those in here who, who maybe don't consider themselves to be, to be Christian. Maybe you're here and you've been, been dragged by someone who's just forcing you to come or offered you a free meal or something like that. But as we've been seeing here in 1 Corinthians 2, this passage has some hard words for us as it shows us that, that on our own we are unable to know God, right? That's what he said in verse 10, or in verse 11. He was saying, we, on our own, we can't understand. But in verse 14, Paul comes right out with some pretty hard words where he speaks to the person who doesn't trust in Christ, the person who he calls the natural person. Here in verse 14, he says, the natural person, that is the person without the Holy Spirit. He says that they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The person without the Holy Spirit here says they don't accept the things of God. They don't accept the wisdom of God. They look at Jesus Christ and him crucified and they just cry out, that is foolish. That is a weak message. That is a crutch for those who need help to get by in life. They don't, under, they don't accept it. And then Paul says they don't understand it. This isn't speaking of like mere intellectual understanding, right? It's not speaking to putting the pieces together, knowing that, that two plus two equals four. But here Paul's talking about they're, they're not able 
to live in the good of it. They're not able to look at the cross and to see the wisdom of God, to see the beauty of God. If you do not trust in Christ, this is what Paul is saying is true of you. And these are hard words, but I think that they are perhaps the most life-giving words. If you look at verse, if you look at the message of Christ and him crucified and you think that is just a foolish message, then I would just encourage you this morning. I would call you to turn to God, to ask him for mercy, to ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, to be able to see the message of the cross as the wisdom of God. Flee the fleeting wisdom of this age and grab hold of the gospel of God. Turn to Christ, cry out to him for mercy because he is a gracious God who turns away none who cry out to him. If you are here and you are just sensing that this is, that, that you don't, that, that you haven't at this point looked to this message and seen the wisdom of God, if your, your heart is still hard towards this message, I just thank you for being here, but hear these words this morning from the Apostle Paul in this passage as just God's grace to you because it is a dangerous place to be. The wisdom of this age, it's doomed to pass away. And for those of us who are here who are trusting in Christ, there are certainly many applications for us. And I just want to draw our attention to, to two of them. I think that the, the wisdom of God it does two things for us. I think first off that this passage here it helps us to see others compassionately. As we've just been seeing here in verses 14 and on, we should have compassion for those who don't know Christ. They are unable to understand. They do not accept. They are unable to understand spiritual things. It's almost like they're looking at life through a, through a carnival mirror, right? Have you seen those carnival mirrors? They either make you look like a really short person or look like you have this huge head. Maybe it's even those filters on your phone. The, those who don't know Christ, that's, that's how they're looking at the world. They look at the message of the gospel, and it's just a funny face. It is just this distorted picture of the world, and our hearts should break. Um, I just, this week, I was just convicted by how often I am just so tempted to look down at those who aren't Christians, those who, who don't in, embrace the, the wisdom of the gospel. I can just subtly in my heart kind of begin to think that I am just so much better than them, right? I, I mean, I, I can just think if they only believed in the gospel, if they, they only lived in light of the wisdom of God, then, then their lives would be so much better, right? They wouldn't be in the mess that they're in. They wouldn't be experiencing the things that they're experiencing if they would, would just look to the gospel and believe it. I mean, they wouldn't be experiencing all of those hard things they are. And I just completely miss that apart from Christ, they are unable to understand. An, an attitude of looking down on those who aren't Christian, it just betrays the heart of this passage. It betrays the heart of the gospel because our, our hearts should break. 
2 Corinthians, it says that Satan has, has blinded their eyes. They are unable to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so our hearts should break and it should lead us to prayer. I think more than anything else, this passage should lead us to prayer for those who don't know Christ, that the Holy Spirit would do for them what he did for us, that he would reveal to them the wisdom of God, that he would reveal to them this message of wonder. Just think, who are, who, who are you praying for? Who are those that your heart just breaks for, whether it's be you know, parents, could be children, family members, friends, neighbors, those of you love who don't know Christ. This passage here is calling us to, to see the reality of their situation and to pray and to cry out to God that he would open their eyes. Pray that the Holy Spirit would do what only he can do. And, our, and, and these prayers, this feeling of compassion, it's just going to come when we realize, like this, this sense, this almost like this impulse to pray for those who don't know Christ, it will come as we remember that this message was revealed to us, that this is a message that we received. Which leads us to our second application. So this passage calls us not only to see others compassionately, to pray and to call out to God for them, but this passage gives us eyes to see ourselves rightly. I think if you're here and if you're a Christian, I just hope that, that you've been experiencing this feeling of, of humble gratefulness towards God. Humble gratefulness for what God has done for you. Because this message has been revealed and received. This message of the gospel, it wasn't discovered. You didn't discover it. You didn't earn it. You didn't achieve it. But this message was revealed to you. And that should lead us to thanksgiving. I mean, here in the gospel, this passage is helping us to see that not only did God have to send Jesus to die on the cross for us to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, but God had to send the Holy Spirit into our hearts to help us to see that and to call it good, to call it what it really is. God not only had to send Jesus to do what we couldn't do, but he also had to send the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see that, that we would cherish it, that we would not look at the wisdom of this age and cry out, or that we wouldn't look at the wisdom of God and call it foolish, but we would look to Jesus Christ and him crucified, and we would just say, yes, I want that. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we would be in that same boat. We would look at the message of the gospel, and we'd cry out foolish. But only because of what God has done for us in the Holy Spirit can we look at it as what it really is. There is no pride in our hearts here. There's a, a helpful illustration here of, of what we can be tempted to do as we think about our salvation. I mean, imagine that, that you're, you're on a cruise, right? I know a couple of people have just got back from cruise, from being out on a cruise here. But remember that you're out on a cruise and, and one day you, you fall over the side. You fall over the deck into the water. Now that in and of itself is already a big deal, but it's made even worse by the fact that you don't know how to swim. And so as you begin to drown, someone on deck, they spot you flailing about in the waters. You are fighting to keep your head above water. They throw out a life preserver to you, and right before losing consciousness, you grab hold and you hold on for dear life. 
They pull you up. They get you on deck. They, you got people are surrounding you, rejoicing with you that you're okay. And finally, after catching your breath, imagine that you were to sit up and you were just to look at the people around you and you were just to say, oh, guys, did you see how great I was? Did you see how great and how strong my grip on that life preserver was? I mean, did you see the definition in my biceps? Oh, man, I am so great. I owned that life preserver. I mean, how, how foolish would that be, right? Like, you would be crazy if that was your response to, what God, to, being, to being saved in that way. I mean, to draw attention to the way that you cooperated with the rescue effort, it would just denigrate the whole point of what's happening to you, and that is that you were saved, that you were rescued. No, I think a more appropriate response is you would, you would search that person out, right? You would search for them, and you would want to know their name. You would want to know what room they're staying in. You would want to take them out to dinner. They could have all the dessert that they want. You would genuinely thank that person, and this response of thanksgiving would just be a, it wouldn't be forced. It would just be just a, a natural response to this salvation, a natural response to this experience. You don't have to be coerced into it. You don't have to be prodded into it. It would just flow organically from your heart. And I think that that picture there should be, what our, should be our response to our salvation, to, to God's act of revealing his great salvation to us. We have been recipients of the Spirit of God who has enabled us to see the gospel for what it truly is. That is what our response should be. We should have a humble gratitude, a humble gratefulness to this message, not pride in our hearts, but we should respond, thank you. We should respond with praise. This passage here is helping us answer this question that we desire. We desire wisdom. And this passage here is showing us that the wisdom of God is found only in the gospel of God, revealed only by the Spirit of God. Church, let's be grateful for this message. I want to release the ushers to prepare the elements. I want to invite the band up on stage. I just love the fact that we end each of our services, we end our sermons by celebrating the Lord's Supper because it is always such a fitting way to end our services together. It's an opportunity for us to, to put into practice, to be reminded once again that we have been rescued, that we are part of a body that has been rescued, that we might grow and increase in our humble gratefulness to God for what he's done. As we see the bread in the cup, as we receive the bread in the cup, they are tangible signs. They're tangible reminders for each of our hearts of the Spirit's revealing work to us, reminding us that not only did Jesus die on the cross for our sins, doing what we couldn't do, but that the Father, in his grace, in his kindness to us, he sent us the Holy Spirit who has enabled us to see this as good news. And we want to respond to that by taking the bread and the cup.